0: Alpha and Omega, the story we find ourselves in, Chapter 7b, The King in His Beauty and Wisdom. The wisdom literature was designed to deepen faith in God by engaging the soul with faith-fueled thought and imagination through story, poetry, song, proverbs, and philosophy. Through engagement with a compelling story of pain, like Job, the art of poetry, like Psalms, Pithy wisdom, like Proverbs, philosophical musings about life, Ecclesiastes, or the inescapable eroticism of covenant-shaped love in the Song of Solomon, a person is pressed to consider their own faith in life. Now, none of these books as a whole have a specific place in the narrative of the Old Testament. Together, they are part of a major section of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, known as the Kethabim, or Writings. Traditionally, they are placed at the end of the Hebrew Bible, following the Torah, the law, and the Nevi'im, the prophets, which also includes a book of history like First and 2 Samuel. So let's look at these books. Job. After righteous Job experienced terrible suffering, he and his friends argued about the reasons why and wrestled with trusting the mysterious ways of God. Job was one of the earliest books of the Old Testament. It deals with one of the persistent moral questions of humanity. How can a good God allow hurtful things to happen, especially to those who are honestly trying to love and serve him? Job, a righteous man, is the focus of an argument between God and Satan. Satan asserted that Job only served God because of God's gifts to him. God challenged that, allowing Satan to attack Job but not kill him. And in a short time, Job lost his economic security, his entire family, his health, and his reputation. Job openly grieved his loss and stubbornly held to his faith while also questioning God's justice. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face, he said. The bulk of the book records a contentious dialogue between Job and his four self-righteous friends about why these things have happened to him, revealing that they all had false perspectives about Job, the world, And God. In the end, God himself appeared, not to give answers, but to ask his own questions. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, I will question you and you will make it known to me. That examination pressed Job to realize both the puny limits of his understanding and the unlimited wisdom and eternal purpose that shapes God's actions. Job's only response was to repent and trust God, even when he still didn't understand. He said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I repent. His life at the end was healed and restored. The Psalms are a collection of a 150 sung prayers written by King David and others that God's people use in their individual and corporate worship gatherings. The Psalms are organized into five books, corresponding to the five books of the Torah. Each book ends with a simple refrain of bless the Lord or praise the Lord in Psalm 41, 72, 89, 106, and 150. The Psalms were written by a group of people from various backgrounds who wrote the Psalms over many years. Many assume that all the Psalms were written by David while he was a shepherd and later a king. David was the major contributor, writing 73 psalms, but other writers include Asaph, that's David's worship leader, who wrote 12, the sons of Korah, a major Levite and priestly clan, who wrote 11, but then Solomon, Moses, Heman, Ethan, Hezekiah, who wrote one each, and about 50 psalms, which are anonymous. We don't know the person or the circumstances of the writing. In addition to joyful praise and thanksgiving to God, the Psalms express a wide range of emotions that an honest human soul would bring to God. Sadness, joy, disappointment, grief, awe, confusion, fear, anger, dismay, hurt, delight, hope, lament, doubt, and more. The Psalms also deal with a wide variety of themes. There are psalms of praise or thanksgiving, like Psalms 23 and 103 and 107. Psalms of penitence, confessing sin, like Psalm 51. The psalms of ascents, which were sung while on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, like Psalm 121. The historical psalms, which recalled Israel's journey as God's covenant people, like Psalm 78. There are imprecatory psalms, praying for God's harsh judgment on enemies, such as Psalm 35. And many psalms of lament, expressing the depths of grief, hurt, or confusion over the perception of God's inactivity or absence, like Psalm 13 or 42 and 43. Some Psalms are tied to particular life circumstances, which are often noted in the Psalm's superscription, About like Psalm 51, which under the number in the Scripture says, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, or Psalm 57, designated of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Others are designed for teaching the faith, like Psalm 119, which in Hebrew is an acrostic, meditating on the power and value of God's word. Others have a clear messianic theme, such as Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted while on the cross. It is this wide variety that made and still makes the Psalms a potent guide for how to worship and pray, bringing faith in God to all circumstances. Next come the Proverbs, a collection of short statements, most from wise King Solomon, about attitudes and or actions that fear God and match his ways. That's wisdom. Or those that do not. That's foolishness. The Proverbs were mostly written or collected by King Solomon. He had asked God for unusual wisdom to guide Israel as king. And the Lord pledged to give him a wise and discerning mind. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. He also spoke three thousand proverbs. The first nine chapters of Proverbs set the tone for the remainder of the collection and are bookended by an overarching principle. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's Proverbs 1 verse 7. And in Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord embraces reverential awe of who God is and appropriate humility about who we are. There are only two paths for any life. One is wise, recognizing this, and one is foolish, ignoring it. In these chapters, wisdom is personified as a woman inviting the seeker to come away from the world and be equipped to live with her riches. There is an ongoing appeal for a young man to listen, learn, and order his life by the wisdom his father and mother teach. Beginning in Proverbs 10 to the end of the book, each chapter contains a series of individual proverbs. They are given in the typical binary style of Hebrew thought, usually in two lines, in which the first is contrasted with the second or in which the first is further explained by the second. Occasionally, there will be a thought or theme carried for three or four verses, but longer meditations as on the godly wife in Proverbs 31 are rare. The Proverbs are not presented as an issue for debate. They are simple descriptions of reality. The wide variety of subjects addressed by the Proverbs is astonishing. Speech, work habits, justice and injustice, treatment of employees, marital relationships, parenting, attitudes, the use of money, poverty and wealth, emotions, discernment, pride and humility, teachability, leadership, encouragement, and more. All the wisdom is meant to teach God's people how to live righteously in the world. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon meditated on the meaning of life and concluded that all human pursuits are empty apart from knowing and fearing God. The Hebrew name for Ecclesiastes is Koheleth, or the preacher. Unlike Proverbs, this is one long and cohesive philosophical meditation on the meaning of life and the pursuit of the good life. Solomon used his own experience as the basis for this, so it is a startling, startlingly honest and vulnerable look into his soul as an old man. Solomon described a relentless personal quest for pleasure, through indulging whims for pleasure, construction and building, gathering possessions and wealth, pursuing knowledge, hard work and advancement, jostling to be first in line for the next big thing. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, but it was unsatisfying to his soul. As Solomon considered the result of his pursuits for a meaningful life, he saw that no matter how hard a person worked for a good life, throughout their time on earth. Evil would still defeat good. The wicked would overcome the righteous. Injustice would still arise. Contentment would evade us. Possessions and experiences would disappoint. Joy would only mask sadness. Fame would be fleeting. And when death comes, everything one had worked for would go to another, and we will be forgotten. So his primary conclusion was all is vanity. It's empty. A striving after wind. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. The overall tone of Ecclesiastes is largely cynical and pessimistic, but tucked throughout are hints of the growth of a hopeful perspective. Ecclesiastes 3 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, and all those times are in the hand of God, who makes all things beautiful in their time. He gives gifts in our ordinary world of meaningful work, supportive friends, good meals, and more, so that even in the messiness and the struggle, a man will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Ultimately, even in his cynicism, Solomon concluded that the best way to live is to view and approach life from God's eternal perspective. He designs meaning we cannot perceive, for Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. It is best to build a trusting relationship with God early in life. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. When all has been heard, He said, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is the way to the good and happy life. Finally, in these books of wisdom, is the Song of Solomon, a poetic reflection on how love and physical desire are a beautiful aspect of covenant marriage. The Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, may be one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, or ignored books in the Bible. While all generally agree that it is about the ultimate love, there are wide differences in interpretive approach. Some think it is literal, others allegorical. Some say it is about an individual marriage and should be seen as a manual for sensual lovemaking. Others insist it is about the relationship between Christ and the church. And so others, it is just a collection of wedding songs. The most straightforward reading is usually best. This is like a dramatic description, think movie or opera scene, between the growing relationship between Solomon and his future wife. He is the handsome shepherd. She is a lovely maiden who has a troubled home life. Friendship ripens to affection and finally into love, marked by passionate emotional bonds and strong, deeply physical attraction to one another. My beloved is mine, and I am his. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. In the end, he fulfilled the longing promise he made early in their relationship to come for her and to make her his wife in a covenant relationship. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. When the day came, she said, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. This is strong and beautiful poetry of relentless desire for another, emotionally and physically. It's interesting. Jewish rabbis would not let anyone study this book until they were over 30 years old. (laughs) This is a valid aspect of marriage, but is reserved for those prepared to enter that lifelong covenant relationship.